than intelligence. There's uh, grit. There's uh, oftentimes empathy needed. There's there's um, um, other varieties of of IQ, emotional uh, quotients, emotional intelligence. There's so many other things, strength, uh, adaptability, um, that are necessary to make something happen in the world besides IQ, besides intelligence. And so among those people who like to think a lot. This is Michael Ring. I'm a cattle and crop farmer from Northern Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I sit down with a technological guru, one of the great minds of our modern age, Kevin Kelly, one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine and the author of many, many books about the future of technology. I had a chance to uh, interview Kevin based on a new book that he's put out about little idioms, little pieces of wisdom that he's captured along the way. And when I first opened up the book, I didn't know what to expect. But as I read through it over two evenings, I found myself wishing it was even longer because he has taken so many of the experiences he's had throughout his life and he's distilled them into two or three words or sentences, and it is a fantastic read. Kevin is doing a book tour, and I happily signed up to record an interview with him. This is a little out of the norm for me, but the reason I did it was because I have so much respect for Kevin Kelly's work, for some of the ideas that he's put out there, and really just an opportunity to talk with an extraordinary human being. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment. But this weekend, I had a chance to interview two people that had worked on their lives. They were um, intense professionals that had both developed careers while also having children. And one of the things they said to me on the way out the door was, man, the experience itself was just so profound, even if we didn't get the recording, the opportunity to sit down and reflect on what we've done was great. I loved the interview. They looked over at each other and would talk about what they admired in what the way the other was a parent and a professional, things they had noticed, what had drawn them together. And it was a really profound experience. But in addition to having the experience, they'll be getting a video recording of that experience so they can pass it on to future generations. Their grandchildren and great-grandchildren will now get to know the stories, where they came from and the lives they led. They are really excited to get it, and I am so proud to be delivering it. If you are interested in having me sitting down with your loved ones, your parents, your grandparents, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to this awesome interview with Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly, welcome to the podcast. I am privileged and honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So why is it that you think optimists are the ones that determine the future? Because um, we have made our world so complicated and complex. The new things that we're making and headed towards are so complicated that we are not going to be able to make them inadvertently or accidentally. And it's good. It requires us to imagine them first, to see them, and to believe that we can make them and make them happen. And so if we look into the past, all the things that we are surrounded ourselves with today that were complicated and good, there was somebody back then who, against all odds, believed that this was possible and would work, even though it was improbable and unlikely. And many people probably thought that it couldn't work. Most people probably did, or even believed that it was possible. So, so our, our present is formed by optimists of the past, and it's going to be optimists today who are going to shape our future because they're the ones who are imagining it and believing that it's possible. I think you have a pretty unique view of the future. You started uh, Wired Magazine. You've written many, many books on technology, what it wants, kind mm -hmm. of where the future is headed. 
are you an optimist naturally or do you choose to be an optimist? I am, I would say I was a, have a sunny disposition, but actually I have deliberately chosen to become more optimistic as I get older. I believe optimism is a skill besides a temperament. It's primarily the kind of optimism I'm talking about is a, is a skill that you can get better at, that we can choose deliberately. In, 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 in child psychology, there's something called learned optimism. And they've understood that they can actually teach children to be more optimistic. And those that are thrive better. And one of the key defining things of learned optimism in, in children is uh, coming, coming to understand or believe that setbacks are only temporary. That they can be overcome. That they're not your destiny. They're not your identity. So instead of saying, well, I'm just unlucky. I'm an unlucky person. Or bad things happen to me all the time. Or uh, I'm never going to get out of this. Or, or this bad thing is me and my fate. Whereas the optimist, learned optimism is no setbacks and disasters and bad things are only temporary and they can be overcome. And so in a certain sense, it, 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 it's very parallel to, to my framing of, of that is, is that um, I'm optimistic, not because I think our problems are fewer and easier to solve than we think. I'm optimistic because I think our capacity to solve problems is greater than we think and increasing faster than our problems. So, so um, as, a, as an optimist, I'm not denying our problems. I'm not, in fact, the problems are the source of progress. I'm, I'm not denying the, 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 the ways in which things break and that the fact that most things will fail and have problems. It's just that, we are able to create a slight bit more than we destroy every year. And if we can create even 1% more than we destroy, that 1% it can be compounded over time. And that if you compound 1% over time, you can have great civilization. And that can overcome any kind of a setback. So that's that's the power of, you know, of compounding in, in any kind of investment is that if you take a long view, um, then uh, even even large setbacks and disasters can be overcome by that compounding over, over, over time. So part of being an optimist is taking a longer view. When you take a longer view of the future and the past, you see progress is real and likely to continue, then and, and the future, you take a long view of it, even fairly large setbacks can be overcome when you have that kind of compounding advance over time that civilization is. It's funny, as I'm hearing you talk, there's so many of your... Um the bits of wisdom that you have in your new book that you've come out with. And I can now hear it. And probably if I were to go back and read other writings. So why don't we uh, talk a little bit about this book sure. that you've put out the excellent advice for living. What, what made you put this together and how do you describe it to people? Right. So the book is a little book like this. It is actually released today and um, it has little tiny tweetable encapsulated proverbs or maxims, adages. And um, I wrote them down originally for me. I started to, to write them for me as a way for me to remember these huge books of wisdom reduced down to a sentence so that I could recall them to change my behavior. And um, I decided to try and write them down for my three kids who are now young adults. And the purpose of that was, you know, we never gave much advice to them, but there were things that I have come to believe I, that I would have done better if I had heard them earlier. So my idea was, okay, well, let me write this down so they can at least see it. And there were just all kinds of things that I learned that I regretted not knowing from uh, one piece of advice is that if you have, family with kids is like create as many rituals as you possibly can. It doesn't matter how small they are or frivolous. 
this having rituals, which I define as anything you do more than three times in a row, is um, really grounding and anchoring to the kids because they really crave consistency and they this anticipation of looking forward to this and counting on that this is going to happen helps them with their own identity as they grow up because they have this consistent expectation and reliance on this little tiny rituals that come come around and around. And um, later on in life, they'll become gigantic in their own view of their own childhood, even though there are little tiny things like, you know, cooking pancakes every Sunday or, you know, the way you might present birthdays, a little of the ritual you do at a birthday. Those are all, they seem trivial to us, but they become really, really impactful in the sense of this anchoring sense of dependency that children really crave as they're growing up. So that's, I didn't do enough of that. Uh, I, I wish I'd known that earlier. I wish someone had told me about the importance of those kinds of things. Um, and the same thing about um, outsourcing things. I was a kind of a hippie, do-it-yourselfer, really believed in the value of making and doing things myself. And um, it took me a long time to realize the tremendous value and leverage that outsourcing as much as possible, the kind of stuff Tim Ferriss talks about, where you are um, hiring other people to do things. And often those people are even better than you and your the time equation makes total sense for you to do that. And not only that, but you can accomplish things that you can't do on your own. You can hire a programmer to make a website. Okay. And you don't have to make it yourself. So that was a, that was kind of a new idea for me. I didn't get involved. I was involved in the very early of, of the internet, but I didn't like do any startups because I said, I can't program. It never occurred to me that you just hire someone to program. Okay. So, because I thought that you have to do it yourself. And, and, and that um, knowledge about the fact that you're, the only scarcity that we have today in this world of abundance is our time. And therefore, the highest leverage thing you can possibly do is to pay someone else's for their time, to take their time for your project. That's like, that's incredibly powerful. They're going to spend their scarce time on your project. And all you have to do is give them money. Oh my gosh, what a bargain. And so this idea of um, leveraging other people's expertise and willingness to work on something that you're doing, I, I just was really slow and took me, I, I just wish someone had kind of took me aside and given me that counsel long ago. One of the things I noticed while reading this book, first of all, when I opened it up, I had no idea. I thought it was going to be a chapter book. So I was preparing for a, a like really sitting down in a long read. But there was something really powerful about these small pieces of distilled wisdom. There seemed to be um, a really a level of um, authenticity and vulnerability in it because really seemed like these were things that were lessons that you would only learn the hard way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, that was one of the filters of, of doing these and collecting these is, is I really wanted to be sure that I stood behind it, that it was, it was like, that I truly believed this, that had experience with this, that wasn't just a kind of a cliche that was like, and, and I really tried and, and, you know, to be fair, um, a lot of this wisdom is ancient wisdom from the Stoics, from Confucius, from the Bible. These are, these are things, a lot of it is not new, but I try to put it into my own words for one thing to make it kind of contemporary. And secondly, if at all possible, for me, the best ones were slightly surprising or there was a, an element of unpredictableness in it. So I was saying it in a kind of a surprising way. And so um, I spent most of my time removing words, trying to reduce these whole books and stories to one sentence. And most device books use stories as a way and stories are incredibly powerful. They're very, very effective. As Einstein said, we're not really made of atoms, we're made of stories or somebody something like that. And, um, and so stories are a great way, but I'm not a very good storyteller. And this caters to my strength, which is I like to write telegraphically and to reduce things to their essence. It's almost like a poetry in that sense. And so, so this was what only I could do. And that's one of the bits of advice in the book is don't aim to be the best aim to be the only. And so 
so so so I, so so this was something I, I'm not good at stories. Uh, many other people can do stories. They'll do books of advice with stories in them. I'm going to do a book of advice that has telegraphic proverbs in them. Yeah, that's so. When I'm not using the studio for the podcast, what I do is I have people sit down with me and we record their life stories and their wisdom to be able to pass on to future generations. And I found what you were saying with the distillation, like bringing them all the way down to its core elements being really um, valuable because many of them were things that I would be like, oh my gosh, I've felt that before, or yeah. I've even thought it, but I've never distilled it. And right, I, right, I right. like the act of writing it down seemed to be really valuable. Yes, you're exactly right. And that's what I would try and do is I would start with something that was big and amorphous and it's like, and I would work and rework and go, go around and around saying, can I reduce this even further with a turn of phrase that would encapsulate this in some ways? And, and, and that encapsulation for me was actually practical, useful, because I would repeat it to myself to remind myself. These are really reminders is like how I think of it. Most of the great important knowledge in this has been already been said. But nobody was listening, so we have to say it again. And I'm telling myself this in some way to, to be able to remind myself of, of this, to, to change my own behavior with this constant reminder. So I can say it in a way like um, whatever it might be, like ritual, okay, right? You know, it's like, and now I have grandchildren, so telling myself, make as many rituals as possible because it's anchoring. And so... These are just um, ways that I think they also transmit well. They can be transmitted on social media. They can forward it to someone and it has can have some impact on them because it's in this kind of bullet form. Yeah, one of the pieces that really stuck out to me was the one on shyness and how you basically yeah. say, look, everybody's shy. Everybody is hoping that somebody else yeah. will do the work to start the conversation. I thought that was really insightful. Right. It's also very similar to about asking stupid questions because I'm the guy up front asking the stupid question. I have no, I have no embarrassment about asking the stupid question because I've learned over many, 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 many years, everybody else will come up to me and say, thank you for asking that question because I had that same, and I was too embarrassed to ask it. And so, um, yeah, and there's another bit of advice about um, when when um, when it's when it's sort of like everybody says um, along the lines of uh, um, there's no need to to say this. You should say it. Oh, goes right? without saying. Yeah, right. it goes without saying. It's time to say it <laughs> because because uh, yeah, you want to bring it forward. So so um, yeah, so shyness and and and, um, and another part of that, by the way, of being shy is. Um, you have to be ready for you know, a no, which you have to take not, you know, not be offended by a no. But it's also worth doing a follow-up. Lots of people are busy and for other reasons. And so trying again, you also shouldn't be shy about trying again. Because that I, you know, and I'm speaking from somebody who gets a lot of incoming, and there's just sometimes when I I just it gets lost, I forget, I'm I'm meaning to respond, but I don't. And that second polite follow-up will often you know get me to answer because i because because i'm busy and so um so yeah so so not only be shy for the first asking but don't be shy about a polite second try yeah i feel like that's one of those things that when you're a young person you're like oh they really they thought about this they told me no or they ignored it and you yeah. just like, as a young person, if nobody tells you, like, you look, you don't have any idea how busy a person can be. <laughs> and it's very easy for these things to just slip by them. Right. But that's, I, I mean, I really did uh, quite enjoy your book. One of the things that struck me was uh, the idea of the creator's mind has to be away from judgment in order to be able to create. I wish I knew that earlier. That is, again, uh, the, the subtitle, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier, is, is, is valid because, because, it just took me so long to, to know that because, because that first draft of writing or the first draft of anything I make is the real bear. And um, I used to 
have too much of the interference from the the creator from the editor mind working on things that I was trying to create whether you're making something or a piece of art there's two there's two functions that you need to make something great and one of them is, is this kind of unleashed unhinged um irresponsible uh, generator of ideas and stuff and then there's this the editor polisher critic who is saying well that's not good enough that, that's not new that's not authentic that's whatever it is there it's a valid necessary step but you don't want it too early you don't want it to be present while you're trying to generate in the beginning or each, in each round and you have to learn to separate those functions in in that process of creation and that was again no one had ever told me that but that was something i had to discover something that many people who are creative know um and some now teach is is that, that separation of those functions and so now when i'm writing whatever it is the, the com a common prompter exercise is that you write without stopping you write until you can't go and you don't edit anything as you're going forward and most of it will be thrown away and minutes later by the editor function you're saying that's terrible but there is one or two bits that you can save and the same thing with you doing art you're generating lots and lots of stuff and then then you follow that phase with the more critical phase of tweaking it redoing it eliminating part of it cutting it cropping it all kinds of stuff and the same with photography or making a wooden bench or furniture it's the same process and i'm thinking too it's also true when you're innovating in an entrepreneur thing you're you've got ideas and stuff and so there, you want to separate that 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 function of it and um it's very very powerful if you can yeah, I feel like that's true with uh, friends, right? You have friends that may be much better editors than they are creators. And if you put yourself, uh, if you're trying to create and you share your ideas with the person that is uh, is good at correcting, but maybe not good at thinking, that, that, that seemed to be to be an important step in that. Absolutely. And I'm a, I've become a really big believer in writing out loud in that sense of, of, of sharing things early in that process. But they can't be present at the very initial stages. It'll kill it. So, so, so that's what I'm saying. You have friends, but you, you, you want, and this is was the genius of the skunk works, the skunk works, um, that was originally done by Lockheed, where they would take a, a group, try to make a new product and they would separate them from the rest of the organization. And it was called skunk works. It was a little off to the side and they were protected. And that was because in the beginning, when you had that Genesis, you don't want all the other corporate pressures of the bean counters and accountants and people telling, you no and the salespeople who all have valid criticisms about why this should be this way or that. You don't want them present in the beginning. It's too, too delicate. You want to have that, that period where you are unleashing and you're being truly, truly creative and innovative. And you want to get enough of that going so that it could withstand and be subject to that inevitable critical process that, that you would have to get something out in it. So you can't, you can't release something without that, but you just want to delay that and separate that from this other function. So you have a very interesting balance between technology and the creation of it and also art and photography. One of the things that you wrote that I still remember vividly the first time I ever encountered it was A Thousand True Fans, where you discuss like how the creator economy can empower people. Mm -hmm. Like how did, how did you talk, talk a little bit about The Thousand True Fans and kind of what happened when you put that out into the world? Yeah. So, 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 so just to summarize very briefly, it says that, um, um, you know, traditionally creators would uh, aim to, to have blockbuster bestseller hits have millions of fans with stuff that, that, you know, publishers and studios and labels would, would put out, they would produce it and the labels would distribute and sell it and market it. And you'd have these really large fan bases. 
And that was seen as the success that you were aiming for. And it occurred to me from the technology that was developing with internet and in social media that um, you could have a different definition of success, which is that if you had direct contact with your customers or audience and you got the entire amount that they were paying for the stuff that you produced, then you needed a far, far, far less number of them. And I did kind of, you know, kind of a back of the envelope approximation saying, well, you know, if you could get $100 from your truest fans, the fans who are completely nuts about whatever it is, and they would buy the paperback softcover in the Kindle version, they would buy the box set, they would drive 200 miles to see you play, they would do anything. Your true fans, if you had a thousand of those true fans, paying $100 a year, then you'd have $100,000 a year, which was, you know, kind of a living, not a fortune, but a living. So that was the idea. And, and the, 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 um, there's a lot of caveats to that. The caveats are, of course, like if you're not a single person, if you're a duet or something, you have to multiply by more, two times. And if you couldn't get $100, if you get only $50, then you need twice as many. But the order of magnitude was correct, which was saying you don't need a million of these. You need thousands of them. And the other caveat, though, is that tending to the fans is a, almost a full-time job itself. It's a lot of work. And not only that, not everybody may be suited for it. And not only that, there are some artists who just don't want to deal with it for a number of reasons. They just want to create. And so you have managers and whatnot. And so, so you, 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 uh, first of all, it may not be for everybody. Uh, and secondly, you might want to have um, more people involved. So you have slightly higher numbers, but again, it's not at the level of millions. And thirdly, um, it, it's a great place to start. Even if you do eventually, not wanting to manage. I mean, you have a runaway success. Um, <clears throat> it's a good place to start. And then the final summary of this of this idea is that um, there are several billion, there are billions and billions of people in the world now connected to the internet. And um, if your passion appeals to only one in a million people, some weird thing you're into making left-handed fishing gear or uh, left-handed uh, you know golf gloves whatever whatever strange little thing salt water aquarium jellyfish that you're raising if there's something that appeals to only one in a million people because there are billions of now people connected you can still have find a thousand of people like you there's still a thousand in one in a million around the world, the, the, the challenge becomes matching those, those people finding you, you finding them. And that technology is in its infancy. We don't really have a super great technology for that. We have technologies now that since I wrote it, like Kickstarter and Patreon to help facilitate those kind of what we now call crowdfunding which was an idea that came after 10,000 uh, true fans. And we have those technologies that can service those people once you've found them and once you have made them your audience. But we don't yet have the really good usable technology that helps us make that matching to find those one in a million thousand true fans anywhere in the world. Um, and that is what I'm hoping for the future that we'll see. So that anybody who has this really one in a million weird idea will be able to match up with those other thousand people in the world who share that. Oh, that's actually a really interesting observation. You know, it's something that we face all the time, right? How do yeah. I how do I get this job that I have to the right person? How do I how do the people find my service? But like you think of this as just a foregone conclusion. It must always be this way, but certainly no. technology could help pair people up with the things that they want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it'll probably be some level of AI and being aware and, and all kinds of other things. Um, 
and 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 um, you know there'll be, there'll be problems with it and people who try to spam it and all these other things. But it is it is a technology that we can um, invent technologies that we can invent that do that matching. And and by the way, um, th this is needed not just for the thousand true fan creator, but many many large organizations with you know like say you know say like a 3M uh, with with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of employees, they have the same problem, meaning that there are people in their organization that they know have certain abilities, expertise, but they aren't able to actually connect them with the people in other parts of the organization that need them. They're not even, it's, it's the, 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 the complexity and the combinatorial explosion of possibilities is so large that even within these very large organizations are not able to do that matching. So that, so this technology is, it, it will be useful, not just for the creator of thousand true fans, but also within all kinds of other uh, applications, including within organizations. So you used uh, the magic words of the, of the day, uh, artificial intelligence. This is something that's uh, a big thing now you're in the unique position in that you kind of envisioned this long before most people could even fathom yeah, that, yeah. that you could have this. Because uh, you wrote a book called What Does Technology Want? And prior to that, people would say, what, you, what does that even mean? <laughs> but if you've used GPT chat for even just a few moments, you start to get this sense like it, 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 it is <laughs> reacting like it wants something, right? Yeah, so yeah. talk a little bit about like, how did you conclude that technology wants something at all? And then how does this work in a, in a world where people can now start to see the vision you saw years ago? Yeah, so, so the... Um... So I use, I, I use want in, in a very deliberate way. It's not a conscious want. It's closer to what we might say a um, a leaning, a tendency is. So what I'm saying is, is that in the same way that we might say that a plant wants light, will tend to grow towards the light. It's not a conscious, deliberate, sentient, wanting it's more of a tendency to need it and grow in that direction and so i'm saying that technology is a system not just individual pieces of technology like a hammer a saw a car a computer refrigerator i'm saying that all those things are codependent on each other you can't really make a saw today without using a computer you need something to cut to make the computer you need a computer to make the saw these are all codependencies and that codependent complex ecosystem of all the technologies that we make and depend on each other is a system. I call that system the technium. This system, like every system in the universe, has its own biases, tendencies that it, that it, that it kind of recurring, they call them strange attractors, things that it kind of tends to want to do because it's a system. That's what systems do, is they have systematic tendencies. And so I'm asking, what are the tendencies of the system of technology? And those tendencies are independent of our own, the, our own agenda, our own desires. The thing wants to do certain things because it's capable of that and not capable of other things. And so the, so the larger question is saying, we've built this technium that's full of all this technology. What does it kind of want to do? We should know that because it's going to want to tend to move in this trend, this direction, whether we want it or not. This is because it's this large system. But even though it has those tendencies, there are so many other aspects of it that is that are under our control, that do, that do respond to our choice. So I would say, in a certain sense, that once a planet... Terry civilization invents or discovers electricity and they make make sound speakers that they're going to have telephones okay so any plant that has electricity telephones will become inevitable some telephones at some capacity the the iPhone is not inevitable but telephones are you know chat gbt may not be inevitable but ai is in some form and so the the general form of these things at the high level 
are inevitable, but the character of the AI, who owns it, who governs it, what's it regulated? Was, is it open sourced or closed? Um, is it commercial or nonprofit? Those are choices that we have to make, and they make huge difference on us. So the so we'll have AI, but the character of the AI and how it's governed, how it's regulated, how it's developed is something that's totally under our choice. And we can decide collectively one way or the other. And so while we have no choice that AI is coming, we have a lot of choice about the character of the AI and how we use it. So I think that's what I mean by the technology wanting certain things. In that regard, if you think about uh, different civilizations or different cultures right now, uh, all working on AI for their own ends, uh, to me, it seems like we're in a nuclear arms race, that, that there'd be no way to stop at this point, because even if you decided in the United States, we're going to regulate it, then people in China or Russia or somewhere else would all have that. So to me, like, uh, it's hard to imagine that we could come to some consensus about what we're going to do about this, because somewhere someone is going to allow it to run wild and free. Right. So that is true. Um, but there are, there are uses that we, I mean, we have collectively as a species currently right now, we have decided on certain things that we're not going to do. Like we're not going to use chemical for warfare weapons. So, so, so there are things that we can agree on and, and, and without them, they would be an arms race. Right. And so, so we, we are capable of overcoming arms races. We have, we have, believe it or not, we have some weird agreements about nuclear weapons. So it's not, it's not totally out of control. So, so we can, we can collectively agree on things to prevent arms races. The question is, is um, those are probably fairly restrictive. So, you know, there's, um, uh, there's plenty of, of weapons still being made. I mean, if we were really sane as a civilization, we would outlaw all weapons of war. We would eliminate war completely. But we're not up to that point yet. Um, so, so I think in terms of AI, I expect that there will be some some kind of regulations, and I hope actually that we regulate the the weaponization of it. Um, I think there are some kinds of AI weapons that we probably will have and maybe should have as an, it's an interim period. And there's other kinds that I hope, you know, that we don't, that we don't allow, that we kind of agree that we're going to outlaw. And that's one of the questions we have right now that we haven't agreed on. And one of the places I do worry about is like cyber conflict, cyber war. We have no agreement on what we allow in cyber conflict. It's like, is it okay to take down someone else's hospital? system in the cyber cyber world can 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 you what about interfering with the, the the water system or the power system is that is that permissible on this planet okay when we don't have those kinds of um of agreements right now and we don't have agreements about like you know to what extent would we allow ai to be weaponized um beyond even kind of like robot soldiers and so um uh, I think it's the larger point is that we do have choices in this. So even though these things are inevitable at the higher level, we have a choice about those kinds of things. So um, you've put your ideas, so many of your ideas into writing that you, I can now go to. In fact, I did before this interview and go to chat GPT and, and talk yeah. with it about you. Right. And right, you've taken right. and distilled your wisdom and, and put it in there. Right, right. What do you think the distant future looks like when we think about like being able to go to a chat um, bot and be able to have discussions with you maybe after you're gone? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would welcome that. Um, um, I, I, I think, you know, the future of, 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 of the chat is, is a really interesting question. So by, by my, my own version of the story of where we are right now is the, the current AI that we are experiencing, the capabilities have been present for a while, for some years. The capability to kind of like generate answers, to generate images. What's new 
what we're all kind of excited and flipping out about is the fact that we now have a conversational user interface. We now have this conversational user interface that we can converse with it and um, that we can make a image by having a conversation about what images that we want. We can have a, a synthesis, a summary by having a conversation. And that conversational user interface is going to migrate to almost everything else. And that was feels very similar to me to the excitement that we had back in the early 90s when the graphical user interface came along to the internet. So there was the internet, which was running for, for decades. Nobody was really interested in it. It was teenage boys and bulletin boards and that kind of stuff. You had to use command line code to, to enter it. And then the moment the graphical user interface called the web came, it just exploded. It was just off to the races. Everybody was joining. It was just fabulous. So that graphical user interface made all the difference to the internet. And now we have this conversational user interface, which is going to make all the difference to AI. And um, the question is like, well, how far can that go? And so the AIs right now will also just as the conversational interface gets better, so will the AIs over time. And the, the question is, um, and, and, and there are some issues with them right now, the, the reliability of them, they tend to hallucinate, to make up stuff. So we are going to have to figure out how to distinguish it. Sometimes when they hallucinate is what we want them to do, to imagine things that we can't. And other times we want them to be very truthful and, and reliable. And so we are going to have to devise tools to um, deliver what it is that we want. We're going to have to tell them, no, 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 look, tell me, just give me the, the correct answer, the truthful answer. Other times you'll say, you'll make up something crazy, you know, imagine some other version of, of the world that doesn't exist. And so, um, so we can, we'll be able to do that and, and it will become more, more reliable. And um, I think but, for somebody that hasn't used GPT chat, it's kind of hard to imagine what you're saying, but you can go to it and, and ask it some problem or give me some thing that happened in history. And unless it's really specific, it may make up an answer. It's yeah. not going to tell you, I don't know the answer. It's right. just going to create an answer. Right. And, uh, and so sometimes if you rely on those answers, you, you're like, I had it doing some math the other day yeah, well, and math I looked at the number. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's <laughs> like, really bad at math way way over a hundred percent it was adding up numbers and, yeah yeah and... yeah it's 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 famously really bad at math um but it could be better we hook it up to wolfram engines and it'll do math great so um what it's really good at by the way there, there's several things that's really good at the current version right now which is synthesis is really good at those in-between things of taking two dispersed spreadsheets emerging a spreadsheet and just figuring out what they what the commonalities are taking two different lumps of knowledge like chemistry and archaeology and you combining to something in, in between or taking two different painters you know picasso and and you know um keith herring and say making something in between synthesize the two of them it's really really good at that that is something that humans can do but we require so much time and effort to do it that for doing it for frivolous reasons, this doesn't happen, but here it costs nothing, so to speak, to do it. And the AIs will do it repeatedly. And they're really good at doing that. The question is like, well, where does that go, you know, down the line in a in, hundred in years when they become really good at answering questions that we can rely on. So the way I've said it before is that um, answers become cheap become free. And, and, you know, when I was growing up, school was all about learning how to get correct answers that they were the valuable thing. Getting an answer was like what you did as a human and you provided really good answers. Well, now answers are cheap. And I think what becomes valuable are questions, having a good question, being able to, 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 um, create something that, um, uh, is, being driven by the kind of questions that you're asking to ask a good question that can keep on rolling up new questions and new answers. And, and that's what they're not very good at right now. What they have been trained on, they, the models, whether they're visual or musical or textual, they're trained on all of humans, the best and the worst, and they tend to produce the average thing. 
They're autocomplete, meaning that they're going to give what they expect the normal average human would produce, even including that synthesis. They're producing something that is taken from what's known. And so they have trouble producing things that are completely outside the human experience. Somebody was telling me the other day that they could not get the image generators to make, to put an hourglass on its side. It was just like, did not compute. It just was beyond any experience. And so for the time being, as long as they've been trained on this stuff that we've made, they're going to have difficulty in really producing something genuinely new. They do what I call lower C creativity. Things are kind of like creative in the sense of what you expect the average human to create. What they can't create is what the genius humans can create, where they're really kind of going outside of anything that we've experienced before. They're not good at that. And that becomes much more of our assignment. What we are going to be doing is trying to go beyond to imagine things that humans have not imagined before. And therefore the, the AIs aren't going to imagine them because they're just trained on what we have already done. Well, as you think about that, you know, let's just imagine they're at the average human. I mean, like if we look at the median of the distribution, that means half of all people won't be able to keep up cognitively with AI. And that, that would be probably very generous, right? It would be yeah. quickly the AI will get above uh, a 100. Right, right. So, and, and so we overestimate the value of intelligence. We over Tell me more. Well, well, like, you know, uh, let's take, uh, we'll take a human and a lion and put them in a cage. <laughs> who, who wins? The smartest one? Um, there is a, there is, there's a, what I call thinkism. There's a fallacy among people who like to think that the answer to everything is more intelligence. The more, the more intelligence succeeds. But, but we know from our own personal experience, it's not the smartest person that necessarily is the most successful. It's not the, it's not the company with all the smartest people that actually will prevail. There's so much more in achieving things than intelligence. There's uh, grit. There's uh, oftentimes empathy needed. There's, there's um, um, other varieties of, of IQ, emotional uh, quotients, emotional intelligence. There's so many other things, strength, uh, adaptability, um, that are necessary to make something happen in the world besides IQ, besides intelligence. And so among those people who like to think a lot, they believe that IQ will trump everything. And, and, and that's just not the, how the real world works. Uh, and so, um, uh, so even there are, even though maybe the IQ of the average AI will be higher than the average human, it doesn't mean that there isn't a role for those humans in the world. It means that they are not going to be giving answers. <laughs> it could be that they could be asking questions. It could be that they are doing the other things that we crave as humans, the small talk, the, the, the contact, the hospitality, the, um, the genuine um, authentic experience of, of, of being somewhere. So, so, so um, I, I just think there's an over emphasis on intelligence from people who like to think. Well, if that's the case, and you've uh, been thinking about your children and grandchildren, what do you think of education in a world where answers yeah. aren't as valuable? So, so, so several things. One is, learning the skill of asking questions will become paramount. And secondly, I think really the only skill that I think you should graduate from school with, high school say, is the ability to learn how to learn. Learning, because everybody, digital natives or whatever, are going to be learning the rest of their lives. They're going to be newbies, the rest of their lives, learning new things. All the digital natives who have been rubbing their hands saying, I'm a digital native, I grew up with this. Yeah, but you didn't, you're not a digital native anymore. You've got the AIs coming and they're going to have whole new skill sets that you're going to have to learn. So you're a newbie, just like the rest of us. And so, um, 
that is a big bar learning how to learn. And, 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 and I mean, I mean, down to the personal level is like how I learn as an individual, how I optimize my own learning, which I'm now 71. And I don't even know to this day exactly the most optimal way for me to learn, say a new language or a new subject area. Like how much repetition do I need? How much sleep do I need between intervals? How much um, rest do I, and you know, how much am I more audible versus visual, you know, versus kinetic? Like, like I would like to know that I wish that I would graduate with the help of all the teachers and testing and stuff so that I was fully aware and could, could, could improve my ability to learn on all different kinds of contexts. And I would say, oh, oh, here's the language. Here's what I, here's, here's what I need to do to, to optimize my learning about this. Cause I've, cause I've already been trained to learn how to learn. And I think that's the major skill that we should be teaching in school. And actually I've, I've met a couple of different um, experimental elementary schools that were doing that. And they were claiming two X to 10 X uh, increases in, um, uh, learning of, of the, of the material because they were teaching the kids how to learn. So this book that you just put out, um, it's really different than the highly technical, I mean, you yeah. make it approachable, but the technical idea is the futuristic thinking. Do you imagine that you will return to writing futuristic books about, you know, the, the envisioning the future, or is this a change in your demeanor and what you care about? Um, no, I, I will go back. I'm not sure I go back to books. I think we're at peak book right now. Um, my children, three young adults, they're not reading books. Their friends are not reading books. They're watching YouTube, which is where I spend most of my time, my discretionary time. They're watching videos. So, so, so we've mo we've become we've moved from being people of the books to being people of the screen. And 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 this information is also on the screen, and that's sort of where it's really native and really where it's best, but this is a very, very handy little way to gift it. Um, and so, um, so the thing I'm doing next is probably not going to be a book native. It may turn into a book at something, but it's probably be much more screen oriented to begin with. And I don't know what exactly that is. And that project that I'm working on is the hundred year desirable future. I call it protopia. It's, 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 it's a future in a hundred years full of all this high technology, the AI, the genetic engineering, the monitoring, the, all the stuff that we're making. And it's a world that I want to live in. It, it's, a, it's, it's a world that, I, that, that other people want to live in. So, oh, yeah, I want to live in that world. That's very, very hard to imagine. It's kind of like a highly improbable world and therefore hard, hard to imagine. But that's what I'm trying to do is, is, is to imagine it so that has more of a chance of actually happening. This is the root of optimism is to, is to, is to describe and imagine something and then to believe that we could make it. So it's not a prediction in that sense. I'm not predicting it. I'm just trying to imagine it as a possible goal to work towards. What have you done to be able to keep your imagination so uh, flexible and pliable yeah. and, and open? It is a skill that you can get better at. And I think there's a bunch of different exercises, but we're going back to the, again, to the kind of divorcing the, the creative mind from the editors is, is you have to allow yourself to have a lot of stupid ideas. You have to, you have to be, you have to be willing to say something stupid and, 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 and Brian Eno and I who work on these sometimes together, we talk about an unthinkable future. So one of the tricks is to, 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 to start with things that seem unthinkable and then to kind of work back from that to, to things that are more plausible, but it's, just, it's kind of like using AI in a certain sense to put you somewhere that you could not expect it to be, and then kind of work back to something that's more reasonable. Um, so there's, there, there, there's, there's exercises that, that brainstorming sessions and scenario sessions we can use to help liberate it. But the main thing that you have to overcome is to forget what the future should be or is expected to be, to, to, to forget what everybody knows, to forget um, 
all the expectations. And that is so, so hard because these things are kind of unconscious and they're kind of built into us. And so we, we always kind of expect the future to be reasonable, but we can tell from today it's not, it's not at all reasonable, right? Who, you know, who could have guessed? And so, um, so you have to kind of get in a state where you allow yourself to be kind of unreasonable and to imagine those things, most of which will be totally wrong, most of which will be totally useless, but you need to have those to generate the few that will be useful. And um, so it's that kind of playfulness that, that you need to cultivate and you know, the kind of childlike innocence of like um, where, where you're kind of beginner's mind and you're kind of maybe going back to first principles and working from there, which is really, really useful for any kind of business and any kind of entrepreneur of, of kind of forgetting what everybody knows. That's it's the one, the imagination is the one thing in life where you really pays to forget what everybody else knows. Most of the time, by the way, what everybody knows is usually true. That's when I emphasize that. Whatever, most of what everybody knows is true. So there are, but there are times you really want to forget that. And that's when you're working with the imagination. Well, Kevin, to, to end the shout, uh, one of the questions I asked during my legacy interviews, and I think you're in a good position to answer this is, as you look back on your life, what was one of the most difficult lessons to learn that was the most valuable to know? Yeah, that's a really good one. It took me a long time to arrive at this little bit of advice in the book, which is don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. And that came through my experience at Wired, where I was trying to pitch stories to writers and nobody thought were valuable. And I kept trying and trying. And eventually I realized that those were the ones that I had to write because nobody else would do them. And they turned out to be my best ones. And so the idea of trying to give away my ideas all the time in the hope that somebody else would steal them and do them, because I only want to work on the things that only I can do. And when you're doing that, when you're working on something that only you can do, it's really wonderful because you don't have any competitors at that point. That was wired. Wired in the beginning was so, wired was a very, very difficult to sell. It seems inevitable now. It seems easy, but it was like impossible at the time. It was very improbable. There was no consumer lifestyle magazine for technical technology people. It was not a lifestyle. It was not, it was like, it was for nerds. It was for teenage boys. Um, and so when we started, there was no competition for a whole decade or, or almost two. Um, and we were the only in that sense. And so um, aiming to be the only um, and trying to move in that direction of not trying to be the best into the category, because the categories are occupied and it's very, very difficult. And there's a limited number of successes and it's someone else's definition of success. What you want to do is you want to move and work in the area where there is no name for what it is that you do. And you're trying to become the only in something. And that's a long, high bar that will take most of your life. And you'll never arrive there. You kind of only move in that direction. But that I wish had known earlier was um, to kind of define success for myself. And that definition would be in trying to do something that no one else is doing. And for me right now, that is my optimism, technological optimism. It's, um, it's not, it's not the norm right now. It's not the, it's not the occupied niche. And so I, I I'm fully aware of the problems and I think, I think the, the pessimists are needed and the pessimism are needed, but many other people are doing that job. So it's, it's a necessary job but other people are doing it. And so I leave it to them to do that. My job is to imagine a future that we want to live in. Well, if people wanted to read your extraordinary book, where would they, uh, where would they go and what would they be looking for? All right. So as of today, May 2nd, Amazon is selling, delivering this book on Amazon. Um, they have it discounted as usual. It's by Penguin Viking, Viking Penguin. And um, they're Audible and Kindle versions. Um, so go there. And uh, I think it makes a great gift, even if you are 
fully wise yourself, there may be a young person in your life who could use this. Oh, without question. And I am a person that hears a lot of advice. This was an extraordinary book. I would highly recommend it. I'm going to be getting one to sit down on our uh, coffee table because I think it's one of those things you could pick up and, and play. It felt like Benjamin Franklin writing, and I, I, I mean that in the highest way that I can. <laughs> I love that. Benjamin, Fra Modern Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Okay, I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs>